0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Rex Young. He's a neuropsychologist and assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I spoke with him on February 12, 2012 from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station KANW in Albuquerque. This interview is included in our show, Creativity and the Everyday Brain. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) If I hold my head just like this for one hour, (laughs) then everything will be fine.
0: Then you go do a yoga (laughs) class afterwards, okay? Exactly.
1: Get a chiropractor. (laughs)
0: Sorry. So what do you think, Chris? Can we go with this? All right.
1: 10987654321
0: Yeah, I think we can work with that. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. Let's do it. <laughs> so, so, um so you know, I interview people. I actually interview quite a m- many scientists um yes. in different disciplines and those are some of the conversations that our listeners love the most and um I interview people who are religious and not religious, but I always start by asking, um, and this is my first question to you, if there was a religious or spiritual background uh, to your childhood.
1: There was. I mean, I was raised um, uh, Christian, and uh, we attended Methodist and Presbyterian services when I was a child, and I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, so I was uh, immersed in uh, quite a uh, right, soup of uh, <laughs> of uh, alternate uh, religious uh, beliefs, yeah, uh, particularly Buddhism and uh, whatnot. So, um, I have a pretty uh, broad uh, religious uh, background, yeah. I guess, uh-huh. and, and uh, in terms of uh, looking at uh, different religions as well.
0: And you know, it's hard for me to think of a subject more interesting than human creativity and I wonder and that's me I mean I feel I've always been interested in this and I just wonder uh, where do you see the roots or do you see the roots of this interest of yours that's really come to define your life's work you know, did you start being interested in creativity as a subject or in yourself um, early in your life?
1: Well it's it, it's kind of a funny evolution so I started it's it's a long story um, i didn't come to this field um by any straight path and and i didn't come to this subject by a straight path either so uh, i came to study uh, the neurosciences through volunteering for special olympics oh. and uh understanding how um different brains work through how they don't work and i wanted to to do that that sort of work and and to Uh, To do that, you had to be a neuropsychologist or a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or something like that. So I chose neuropsychology. When I got into uh, neuropsychology and started doing research, I uh, got interested in uh, intelligence, uh, partly in um, homage, I guess, to my work with Special Olympics and and understanding how intelligence works in the brain, how it doesn't work in the brain. Hmm. And I studied that for a number of years. Um, Over time, it came to my awareness that uh, intellectual capacity of the brain doesn't tell the whole story, that there's other human capacities, particularly human capacities, that are uh, of interest, particularly creative capacity, and that this might be something different than intelligence and uniquely different uh, to human brains. And so I decided to spend a good chunk of time here in the middle of my career studying creativity.
0: Right. And so that that volunteering you did with Special Olympics, was that when you were still, say, in high school or before you went to college, or was this when you were... Older.
1: It, was in, it was in my lost years, so I, I, my, undergrad, my undergraduate degree is in finance.
0: Okay, and, now uh, <laughs> see, that's an important piece of the story.
1: <laughs> yes. So I said it's a long story, so I worked in the business world for, for many years, or not many years, for a few years, huh. and uh, became, uh, I don't know, disenchanted or bored or something like that, and started uh, volunteering for Special Olympics with friends of mine coaching basketball and huh. volleyball and track and uh, <laughs> really became more more and more involved in that and and uh um, you know over time, I quit my job in in um, uh finance and in, in business and started working in a sheltered workshop uh, for people with uh adults with um, mental retardation mm. and started moving in that direction so um that that really started moving me in the direction of Looking at brains front and center—that's
0: really interesting, and it actually is um, feels relevant to the definition, as I understand it, of positive neuroscience, which is this field you're in. <laughs> that not yes. just what the brain does well, but how it can positively influence society. Yeah, and and um,
1: it it really was a positive experience for me. I mean, these are. Um, individuals, adults, largely with mental retardation, autism, and whatnot, and uh, it's often viewed negatively, but um, boy, um, it really brought so many positive experiences to my life, and and I saw so many positive uh, experiences in the adults' lives with, with whom I was working that um, there's really something very profoundly important and interesting going on there that i wanted to explore further
0: yeah and that that touched on this idea of intelligence but as you're saying wasn't at all encompassed by the way we usually talk about intelligence or our brains
1: yeah it was intelligence in uh and oftentimes it's it's uh, absence the way we Mm -hmm. we we uh, look at it uh in in psychometric properties and and yet there was um, a lot going on there, a lot of uh, creativity, a lot of personality, a right. lot of other things going on. Uh, I remember in particular working with uh, 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 an adult um, – uh, well, he's uh, – can I say names? Sure. <laughs> Is that <Yeah>. okay? <laughs> I mean uh, Alonzo Clemens who's pretty well known in the autistic savant community and he's an artist – and he does these um uh beautiful sculptures of um animals and he he suffered a traumatic uh brain injury early in life and it's left him mentally retarded and and you know socially retarded and yet uh he was able to produce these uh, profoundly creative Um, three dimensional representations of, uh, cattle and horses and giraffes. And, um, it was just, um, amazing the creative capacity that, that, uh, he had in his brain. So again, that was one of the seeds that got me interested in the interplay between intelligence and creativity.
0: So at this point, um, how, what is your working definition of creativity? And maybe it'd be interesting, too, to hear how that definition has evolved. Like, where did you start and what's how, how, how nuance has been added over time?
1: Well, I'm, I'm pretty humble about this because I'm a newcomer to the field. So <laughs> I'm, I'm an expert in intelligence, but I'm a, I'm a carpetbagger to creativity. So um, I, I've adopted the definition that, uh, that I found when I got here. And the definition of creativity is something uh, both novel and useful. And I like that dynamic interplay of novelty and usefulness. If something is just novel it's it's uh, could be um, useless, mm-hmm. it could be the word salad of of a patient with schizophrenia that's novel, but it's not particularly useful uh, within a given context and and utility. Uh, mere utility is is not enough. It has to be something new. It has to be useful. It has to be also within a social context so that novelty and usefulness um, might be uh, in play, but within a given social context, it might not be recognized at that time. Van Gogh is a good example where uh, his novel and useful paintings Hmm. uh, were... Novel and useful, but not within the social context uh, within which he was at that time uh, if if we found ourselves in possession of a van Gogh at this point, we would be quite happy. <laughs> yeah. but uh, at that time, it was mostly for his brother
0: but and but there is and you're right and so but there's a bit of a there's a bit of a judgment call there too that that beauty i mean if, if, just even including art, clearly our minds go to art but um you know you were saying that those kinds of values that bringing something beautiful like that is useful you
1: know? yeah and 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 it's always in the it, in the eye of the beholder there is there is a there is a receiver of that beauty of that that knowledge of that new thing and so there's that interplay or that exchange if you will between the producer of the creative thing or act and the recipient of that creative thing or act. So there's that exchange that's important too. Mm. Um it it's not done in isolation. A, a lot of creative people will say that they you know they do their creativity for themselves and and um it's it's in isolation, but um when when it gets down to it, they're they often you can trace some sort of uh uh other uh, mm. in the mix whether uh that other is in the past in the future um some some sort of uh, exchange is uh, is in the work so that social context is important mm. and and that's not my definition uh that's a definition that's been worked out through you know several years if not decades
0: so i'd like to really get a um a more granular under understanding of what what you do in terms of the mind research um y- y- um, i'm going to just start this off, but you correct me and fill, fill it out you're okay. you're essentially looking at what is happening in the brain um, when in, t- in terms of c- creative thinking and behavior and co- comparing that learning what what characterizes that because you can also compare that to other kinds of thinking is that right
1: that's correct I think i mean you can 't just look at creativity in isolation um, you have to Bounce it off these other uh, characteristics like intelligence, personality variables, um, things like uh, more granular, as you say, uh, working memory, attention capacity, some more basic cognitive processes. So what is unique about creativity and how the brain manifests creativity that is is um, overlaps these other um, brain things that the brain does and and what is similar and what is unique so we have to um, take various measures in order to understand creativity in in its specialness i guess
0: Hmm. so so what have you learned what do you see that that's been surprising and new
1: Many things are surprising. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with 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 most research, the the more you learn, the more questions come Mm -hmm. up. So that's good. I'll be at this a long time. But uh, I went in this rather naively, um, as I said, uh, casting my net. Very wide, trying to look at creativity and the definition of creativity and the measures of creativity and uh, that that were out there, throwing these into a big basket and and trying to find correlates brain correlates of of these different measures and and then bouncing them off what I knew well, like intelligence, and then uh, bouncing them off of things like personality measures so um, the, the, I guess the most surprising thing. And the most gratifying thing is that one of our hypotheses was supported usually when we make hypotheses or when I make hypotheses anyway. It's (laughs) almost 180 degrees opposite of what I hypothesized. So uh, the fact that creativity is something different than intelligence is uh, gratifying and that we're finding different brain networks than we found to be involved with intelligence is uh, interesting and... um, Rewarding, I guess, mm-hmm. and and the the way in which the brain networks are engaged is surprising with um, with intelligence, and we we have a theory that we we put out uh, in two thousand seven, uh, the parieto frontal integration theory. So regions in the parietal lobe and the frontal lobes, basically the back part of the brain and the front part of the brain, are integrated in in a way that allows intelligence to work well. And the story with intelligence is more is better. Um, greater cortical thickness, um, more neurons, uh, higher connectivity between those neurons, and uh, more biochemicals uh, subserving those neurons was almost invariably better for intelligence. Okay. With, with creativity, the story was more subtle and different. In particular regions of the brain, particularly the frontal lobes, less was better um, there' was a down regulation of the frontal lobes that appeared to facilitate or uh, foster creative cognition the way we were measuring it, and I can get into that as well, well but so
0: when you when that goes down what what is shutting down what is what is shutting down that the brain is normally doing if it 's lit up there
1: the brain and we 're not doing functional studies we 're doing structural studies which I can um, uh, talk about as well, but it, it's not shutting down as much, but the, it's, it's allowing a freer interplay mm. of different networks in the brain so that the ideas literally can link together more readily. So with intelligence, there's, you know, the analogy I've used is there's this super highway in the brain that allows you to get from point A to point B as quickly and as efficiently as possible. You don't really use a lot of resources to do something that, um, you know, intelligent behavior requires with creativity it's a slower more meandering process where you want to take the the side roads and the even the dirt roads uh, to get there uh, to put the to put the ideas together so the down regulation of frontal lobes uh, in particular is important to allow those ideas to link together in unexpected ways
0: hmm. um, is that there's this term transient hypofrontality is that is that a description? A that is formal yeah. description and, of what you just said. Uh,
1: and 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 I'd like to uh, give credit to Arne Dietrich, who's a collaborator and friend of mine from American University in Beirut, who coined this term. Mm. But yeah, the transient hypofrontality is is what appears to be happening, and and both of those terms are important. It's transient; it's not it's not permanent hypofrontality. Right, you uh, meander which, for
0: a while and then you go back to being direct.
1: Yeah, because you need your frontal lobes later to push ideas forward and hypothesis test and whatnot. But mm-hmm. uh, this transient hypofrontality is, is appears to be conducive for um, extrapolating out and analogizing, looking at metaphor and whatnot to, to uh, pull different concepts that you have in your toolbox together mm-hmm. and put them together. But then when you do pull them together, you... Um, you get your frontal, lobe, frontal lobes back online and uh, uh, and then hypothesis test, decide if it's a good idea. And then personality variables, uh, which require a lot of frontal lobe activity, um, certainly would uh, engage your frontal lobe. So this hypofrontal state is a, um, is a transient state.
0: Okay. So um, I, I, there are a number of... Um i want to say what core qualities or indicators of creativity that are part of your studies it was really interesting to me that one of them is humor that's that's one of the primary (laughs) expression of creativity that you see
1: i think so I, i i think uh the expression of humor is a creative act and and you know it's it's novel it's useful uh it 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 fits the definition. It's socially relevant. And, um, it, you, you often it's unexpected, which is another uh, definition of, of, of creativity. And that's the definition of humor is you're going in a, in a certain direction and it kind of takes a turn to the unexpected. And that's what makes it, uh, oftentimes humorous is that there's an unexpected, um, turn of, of phrase or turn of events that, that makes something humorous. So we um, straight up measure uh, humor uh, in, 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 in our studies to as one of the variables of, of interest.
0: So it's interesting. Humor um, also comes up in my conversations with, um, well, a person like Desmond Tutu and, and others who will say that humor, that God has a sense of humor, that, that humor is a, is a, is a spiritual <laughs> virtue
1: i hope so yeah <laughs> yeah otherwise we're all we're all sunk
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but to me it's also an example of how um how you're right we we've had i mean i grew up in the era where everybody got tested for iq and then it kind of yeah. went away because no one really knew what to do with it or whether that was responsible right. um or what it really measured you know what what it mattered and uh Still, we we our kind of cultural vocabulary about intelligence um, doesn't necessarily include something like humor. But the minute you say that, that you say that that is a comp- as an expression of creativity, it's it's just obvious.
1: I think it's obvious, and and certainly when we measured it, it it was correlating with our other measures of creativity. It was not correlating with our measures of intelligence. So, you know, this overlap between. Uh, it and things that look like uh sound like the duck that is uh creativity um made sense hmm. uh so and you said something about intelligence that i want to uh correct i mean the, there is some cultural baggage with uh intelligence that uh is important to um, well correct mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 a, it, it's an important measure it's an accurate measure, and it has many uh predictive capabilities uh out in the real world. And uh, the IQ, I
0: mean, yeah, mm -hmm. an an
1: IQ test. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's one of the. I mean, I've I've read uh, one journal article that uh, said it's measured more accurately. Um, They've done a study apparently where it's measured more accurately than height in the doctor's office, um, which um, is profound. (laughs) I mean, it's been around for a hundred years. It's measured incredibly accurately, and it has really um, profound predictive. Um, capabilities for things like educational success, uh, work success, even longevity. So there's something very important going on with intelligence. So we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater to, you know, use a tired old cliche. However, um, it's not enough. And that's what the conclusion that I came to. So I think when you, when you were speaking of being tested as uh, as a child, as, as I probably was, um, on intelligence tests, and they didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think it probably reflects the fact that uh, intelligence tests are very good at predicting you know, academic success and what you'll do in school and whatnot. But then beyond that, uh, when you get into uh, life yeah, right. uh, <laughs> writ large, yeah. um, it, it gets more complicated. I work with very intelligent people every day of my life. I don't work with a lot of creative people, so <laughs> there's something there's something else going on. Uh, so intelligence testing is very valuable, but it just doesn't tell the whole story.
0: And I mean, you also, um, I, I think, in your work and in your writing, when you're out there speaking, you are also correcting some other assumptions that are out there. Um, One thing I've heard you talk about that really surprised me was that this idea that we've somehow gotten about the left brain, right brain, uh, right, that if you're a left brain person, you're logical. And if you're a right brain person, you're imaginative and you're probably stuck on that side of things. And you've you've said that that's just not true.
1: Well, it's demonstrably not true. And and it's it's one of those tendencies. That's why I took. A time to correct you on intelligence a mm-hmm. little bit because it's just so easy to fall into these um, what we call folk psychologies, um, these easy kind of metaphors for science, and and they have a grain of truth in them, mm-hmm. all of them do, but it's it's it, it falls apart when you look at it more closely. So with left brain right brain, for example, there is a series of studies by. A neuroscientist, uh, Gazaniga and a neurosurgeon, uh, Sperry, who um, were doing um, corpus callosotomies, and that's going to take some explanation. So the corpus callosum is a bundle of uh, wires that connect the two hemispheres, basically, uh, white, white, white matter myelinated axons that connect the two right brain and left brain to one another, and they communicate back and forth. And people with epilepsy... Uh, were having uh, difficulty treating epi- epilepsy, so they decided to sever the corpus callosum so that the seizure couldn 't progress from one hemisphere to the other. This would stop it in its track there 's no way for the electrical firestorm to propagate from one hemisphere to the to the other yeah. so in severing the corpus callosum, the left hemisphere from the right, they discovered. That the left hemisphere, as you say, was more logical and linear and language was often located in the left hemisphere and the right was more synthetic and uh, visuospatial. And this got taken up in the popular press as the right hemisphere, the right brain, was more creative. And that took off like wildfire and so you have you know tap into your right brain to be right. more creative and right. this and that and you know in in our neuroscientific studies you'll often find uh, correlates in the right hemisphere um, that are related to creative cognition, divergent thinking or personality variables but that doesn't mean that creativity somehow resides in your right brain There takes lots of parts of your brain working in tandem to do creative things. If you didn't have your left hemisphere, I'm, I guarantee you, you wouldn't be creative. Right, um, right.
0: Well, it's that useful, useful like, part. I mean, it's like yeah. <laughs> innovative and exactly. useful um, it, exactly. or, in, and novel and useful. Now, another, so uh, um, I was actually stunned and very excited <laughs> about a New Yorker article recently um, that also said that this idea that we have about brainstorming as the mm. best way to elicit creativity from a group of people and all the ground rules that go with that about no questions, no judgment, that that, in, in fact, not just has not now been proven not to be true, but that it's never held up
1: no, <laughs> scientifically.
0: No. And I just want to ask you about that because you have studied creativity.
1: I do, and and we've been talking about this for some time, and the articles are out there for people to, to view, but Jonah Lehrer is yes. the author of that article in The New Yorker that you're talking about, and I read it as well, um, did a very good job of uh, disabusing people of that myth, and I get asked about that a lot. Well, what about brainstorming? It's like brainstorming is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> uh, and 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 the main reason why is because of this process of um, trying um, out strange new ideas versus when you put people together in a room, almost invariably they will try to conform socially. And so you, you will get creative ideas, but you won't get as creative when people are trying to please each other than when they're trying to push the envelope and um so the the studies invariably show that the the quality of the creative ideas um, that people put out individually are invariably higher in quality than those uh, done in in a group format so uh, another um, non, another myth bites the dust, yeah and again i mean there uh, there's always you know like well, what about uh you know the writers of Seinfeld or Saturday Night Live, or something yeah. like that they work in group formats, yeah, but it 's different i mean they're they 're putting out ideas and they 're they 're very antagonistic and, they're right. and um, they 're competitive and they 're not trying to conform, they know each other very well. Um, It's not a it's not a brainstorming session where you're trying to figure each other out. It's it's a different type of environment. And um, in this creative environments, there's uh, where you have collaboration like that. There's often an element of um, antagonism involved and and uh, (laughs) and critical uh, interplay as opposed to cooperativeness
0: right, so could we could we state that po- with positive effect and say relationship
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> which includes yeah,
0: antagonism I, <laughs> but also enough no- which includes enough knowledge to be constructively antagonistic
1: yes, constructively antagonistic, but yeah, I, I, uh, Joan All'aire did a great job of uh, of um, deconstructing that that myth about brainstorming.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, when I hear myself saying I was so excited, I I, I know their entire industry is built on brainstorming and, and, and yeah. I know really good, smart people who part of their livelihood has to do with brainstorming. I'm, so but I think um, what I've always been aware of, I mean, I'm a reasonably creative person and I just know that personality wise, there's something about that forum that is very uncomfortable for me. And I just yeah. know I'm not doing my best idea generating and and yeah. there must, be, I think it probably favors personality types, for example.
1: It probably does. It's probably better team building exercise to mm-hmm. do brainstorming right. than it is creative exercise. It, it it teaches people how to work together cooperatively and how to exchange ideas and whatnot. So it feels very good in terms of management and team building. But uh, uh, as far as generating creative ideas, not so good.
0: Mm-hmm. But it seems to me also, and I, this is a subtle point, but this feels important also that um what you the contrast to to brainstorming that um that that there's that there's also you know where where really where creativity can be demonstrated there's still um there's interaction it's a funny thing cuz with brainstorming you have rooms full of lots of people and they're all yeah. spewing forth ideas but but they're not interacting and um that article talked about some building at MIT where yeah. Where there were just all kinds of informal interactions right. and conversations that happened all the time, as you say, with people who got to know each other over time. So they could be asking interesting questions of each other. And and it, what I just found it very comforting because it, it struck home. It felt like, yes, yes, that is how it works when it works.
1: It is. And it's more serendipitous. So you have Noam Chomsky at MIT rubbing shoulders with physicists and coming up kind of with by his, accident, right? Just because he accident, happened to be in that building. Exactly, uh-huh. and coming up with uh, different theories of how language works based on networks or something like that. I don't fully understand it, but uh-huh. um, um, but, but but because he's interacting with chemists and physicists and mathematicians um, by happenstance, um, he's able to think differently um, about his ideas. And that's one of the things about creativity—you know, getting what we call—you know, stove having having uh, too narrow of a field of view. Um, really um, stifles creativity. So being able to broaden the horizons and, and that magical building at MIT, the name of which I can't remember. I, it was, uh, um, ma-
0: I wrote it down. It's Building 20.
1: <laughs> building 20. Okay. Yeah. We'll call it Building 20 at MIT, that yeah. magical building where you could have this exchange of ideas and people running into each other. And it's kind of cold and dingy and people didn't really want to be there. But Yeah, it was not the but, perfect uh,
0: environment.
1: No, it's not it's not this great, you know, Googleplex yes. where where <laughs> where you have ping pong tables and it's all perfectly designed to foster creativity supposedly. It's it's kind of a dingy old building it sounded mm-hmm. like to me where people were relegated when they didn't have like real office space yeah. for them. And and they were forced to think outside of their out of their comfort zone and that's that's kind of what I think is going on in the frontal lobes in this transient hypofrontality mm. where where you're where you're getting outside of your comfort zone, where your brain has worn ruts in the road and and traveling. Um, other paths
0: right walking down the hallway to, to get a glass of water and stopping someplace you didn't expect <laughs> to stop to think about hey, a certain thing
1: look at the yeah look at this person that i ran into yeah.
0: um,
1: and and an idea is merged with another idea and it's novel it's useful hmm. it's relevant so i think that's how it works in the physical space and um that's a nice analogy for how i think it's working in uh brain space
0: hmm. I want to ask you um, another about another one of these ideas, uh, and this is again as a parent. Now, this is one I've never seen. I've never seen industries built on, um, but it's something that's t- to me proven true in life that there's a connection between boredom and creativity, or be- between not having enough to, not having things given to you to do. And then, uh, you know, I think I've, I've, I've felt that with my children that that when there's when they actually are bored it may be a really good thing for them ultimately because they have to come up with something. But then recently I also interviewed a humorist, a very creative, brilliant person named Kevin Kling, who also just talked about, you know, being a child and how back then he was not given, he did not have a schedule <laughs> yeah, and how much time he and his brother had just hanging yeah. around with nothing to do and actually how much came out of that.
1: I think yeah i i talk to people about uh my childhood and how recess was the most important class of the day yeah <laughs> where you so there's the knowledge acquisition portion and then there's the the place where you have to you you have to let the ideas flow and uh if you're always in knowledge acquisition mode which is important uh you have to you have to put ideas in your head in order to put them together in novel and useful ways. But if you're constantly in knowledge acquisition mode, there's not that quiet time to put it together. And this gets to uh, another important uh, creative trick, I guess, if you will, but almost invariably you hear, um, how do you induce transient hypofrontality? How can you do that? Some people's brains, as we reported in our studies, are more set up that way to Have transient hypofrontality, if you will. But you you hear lots of stories of, you know, in history from Archimedes' bath where he studied or uh, discovered um, density by um, immersing himself in a bath and looking at displacement. He figured out he could measure how much gold is in a crown or something like that and cried, Eureka. Um, But this warm bath or the long walk of Beethoven or uh, Kekul. awakening from a, a dream and imagining a snake uh, swallowing its own tail and uh, thinking of a benzene ring. Hmm. Um, all of these have in common this this hypofrontal state, whether it's induced by a warm bath, walk, meditation, um There's free exercise, space in there. There's, there's what yoga. we might call yeah.
0: downtime.
1: <laughs> there is downtime where your brain is not engaged in ongoing... Cognitive activity, even mm-hmm. exercise is a way to do that um, where it's it, you know you 're just working your body but you 're not working your cognitive resources um, and and it induces this this um, workspace for you to meander around and put ideas together and everyone knows the trick that works for them the the shower in the place or the okay. yoga class or like, some people drink i mean it's, <laughs> it's it's a lot of ways to get there but uh, a lot of people know um, creative people in particular know what trick works for them to um, get away and for your children uh, to get back to your question, that's an important space to, to cultivate, that recess from knowledge acquisition. You have to have the raw materials in place to put together, mm-hmm. but you also have to have the time to put them together.
0: So does this speak to um, how we want to discipline ourselves to live with our technology? Is this something you think about? Um, you know, If we're constantly checking email or <coughs> seeing, not in my case, but in my children's case, who just texted them um, – are we then actually diminishing the possibility of just spaces for creativity?
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, mean, I haven't studied it empirically, but uh, it, it 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 appears evident, self-evident that uh, all of this uh, engagement of your brain in activities through technology is uh, uh, knowledge acquisition as opposed to um, putting ideas together. So I think that's crowding out, um, time for creati- creativity. And I just gave an interview to one of the, I don't know, wired type, uh, mm-hmm. magazines or bloggers or something like that. And he said, well, this is really going to upset all my uh, blogging people. And I said, eh, it's not, it's, you know, who, who are constantly on Facebook and constantly, uh, tweeting and blogging and <laughs> yeah. all of that. Um, it, they I, I, I hypothesize, and again, I've been wrong so, so many times in the past <laughs> that I wouldn't take this. To like the every
0: day. good scientist,
1: <laughs> but I, I, I hypothesize that that's crowding out uh, time for creative cognition.
0: But you know, it's different to hear it from you. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it feels like common sense, right? Like you know, I could, we could have this conversation with, if neither one of us was a scientist. But for you yeah. to know physiologically the conditions that. We need to get our brain into to be creative um, and to, to be able to see the common sense that emerges from that about, about how we – about these technologies that, that, that now um, are using, as you say, our cognitive energy so much at the time. Yeah. It's, it's very – it's dramatic.
1: Well, most science is just confirmation of common sense things, right? <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> we just take uh, we just experimentally support huh. common sense notions, huh. or we disprove you know mythologies. But um, most most science is just confirming common sense hmm. uh, uh, as we go along.
0: I, I do want to talk about genius, which is a little bit across the spectrum from common sense, um, and you. Um well, you, you, you—that's something that you have spoken about, and also about the fact that it's not really been studied. Um, you mentioned a minute ago uh, someone who was a savant. I mean, this is this is equality. This is a a kind of personality that I think people are maybe more aware of these days, maybe just through television and movies. Um, have you studied uh, the brains of geniuses, savants?
1: I have not. Um, uh, other than you know, hanging around Alonzo for mm-hmm. um, a couple of years, uh, I have not studied empirically the brains of savants or geniuses. They're uh, a lot rarer than you would uh, imagine, mm-hmm. um, and they're different. So, um, I think genius is the unique integration of intelligence and creativity. And we just wrote a. a book chapter on the subject that you know if you have again we know people who are intelligent and not so creative we know people who are creative and that probably takes a certain level of intelligence but you know this unique integration of intelligence creativity and probably personality variables Mm -hmm. is um particularly persistence perseverance all those p personality variables Mm. um that's probably the Genius that is so rare, and um, I could not find any study of that in the uh, neuro, in the neuroscientific literature in the medical literature that i when I looked um, and it 's uh, probably by virtue of the fact that it 's such a rare phenomenon uh, to get access to i 've probably met one genius in my life, um, John Nash, who right. happens to sit. On a board of a organization that i uh, am involved with, so they asked me who I wanted to sit sit by at dinner and I'm uh, well John nash, of course mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the nobel prize winner so um, and uh, but it's it 's exceedingly rare now savantism uh, is um, an exchange between exquisitely high ability in one splinter area, usually at the expense of intellectual capacity so you 'll Have someone that can't take care of their own daily needs or um, is intellectually compromised, this broad capability of the brain that intelligence is – that defines intelligence. But they have a splinter skill and it shows the incredible computational power of the brain um, that it can do something like numerical skills so well or artistic um, representation so exquisitely well but it's at the expense of other capacities of the brain
0: and can you also see that when you study brains um you can you can visually see that
1: we're starting to see that so i'm doing a study now of high math ability which is you know a, a, a kind of i guess a splinter skill if you want and and you will see and we have uh, documented uh, uh, regions of the brain that are beefed up like a muscle. So we don't know if yeah. this is genetic or environmental, but these these people that are at the 95th percentile in terms of uh, their performance on standardized math tests um, have uh, um, greater brain capacity in certain regions of the brain. I suspect with uh, autistic uh, or savants, um, usually autistic savants, you'll have certain regions of the brain beefed up To support that savant splinter skill uh, at the expense of other other uh, brain regions that are shrunken.
0: I wonder, are you familiar with the term that Einstein used of spiritual genius?
1: I'm vaguely familiar with it. Yeah, there's people there's people who have exquisitely um, engaged or in uh, and uh, attached attachment to a uh, spiritual uh nature i guess
0: well he he was i mean it in the context of the remark that he made was was his dismay with scientists you know in the early 20th century who were creating weapons of mass destruction when he had had this you know mm-hmm. beautiful view of science as something that transcended um national boundaries and conflicts and and then chemists and physicists were creating these weapons, and um, yeah. he was very admiring of Gandhi, for example, who was his contemporary. And he his examples were Gandhi, uh, Jesus, Moses, Buddha, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, yeah. and he would say that um, that the dignity and security and joy of humanity depended on as much on these kinds of what he called geniuses in the art of living as it did on purveyors of objective knowledge. Yeah. And I'm just curious about, you know, what that phrase spiritual genius um how that strikes you and where does that what does that fit into this view you have of the notion of creativity and genius?
1: That's a very complicated question. <laughs> I think that uh particularly invoking Einstein um I I think that this well, with regard to scientific knowledge in general, um, there is a um, interplay between what we know, what we uncover, and um, dangers that can emerge from uh, the knowledge that we gain. So there's a responsibility. in being human, um, There is uh, there are acts, there are uh, acts of, you know sins of omission and sins of commission that, uh, occur that perhaps he was alluding to with, um, you know, for example, the, the, the nuclear bomb, yeah. uh, this, this knowledge led to some, uh, um, knowledge that, uh, that destroyed life. And, um, you know, now we're tinkering around with the brain and it, um, it, it opens up some important and, um, problematic ethical issues that uh, we aren't spiritual geniuses <laughs> those of us uh, neuroscientists who are in this field I haven't uh, met uh, any Einsteins or other uh, spiritual geniuses uh, in in my field but uh, we're tinkering with the machine that, that uh, allows us to be uniquely human and um, now we're starting to face some questions about what if we could make ourselves more intelligent yeah. well um, I don't know Some something like 30 some odd percent of uh, um, students are now taking cognitive enhancing drugs like Ritalin and Modafinil and mm. I don't know 10 or 15 percent of uh, scientists in a science article endorsed taking um, cognitive enhancing uh, drugs I think maybe as high as 25 percent mm. uh, endorse taking cognitive enhancing drugs so that they could um, have an edge on, on other scientists, because we know uh, that some of these medications, some of these drugs uh, can um, give you an advantage over other humans. All right. what, what if we could um, electrically stimulate the brain? We're starting to look at the ways that uh, um, the, the other way that the brain communicates instead of chemically, um, electrically. And we can manipulate the brain chemically or electrically to um, to change behavior. What if we could understand um, if someone was lying by putting them into an fMRI scanner? Mm. Um, these are um, very important ethical questions that uh, um, I don't know that we have the spiritual genius uh, to uh, to undertake. I think we're where there's ethicists and there's neuroethicists working on this question, and I belong to, uh, or I have belonged, I think I let it lapse. Maybe that's an ethical lapse uh, to the neuroethical society, um, but uh, it's it's uh, uh, very important questions. Uh, I don't think we have the 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 genius to uh, address these very well, as um, Einstein alluded to.
0: Or you know, this is a. A variation on that question. I mean, earlier on, you talked about your work with Special Olympics and how those experiences with um, people with mental disabilities um, will just changed your way of thinking about what it means to be human, and also influenced your entry into science. Um, and one of the people I've interviewed is uh, Jean Vanier. Are you familiar with him? He started the no. L'Arche movement, which is a which is a global movement. Um, of communities centered around people with mental disabilities, especially Down syndrome. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think if Einstein had known him, <laughs> he might have said there's a spiritual genius. But even if you, if you put that language to one side, I, I think that's a form of creativity. There's there's social, socially useful, yeah. novel and useful creativity. Yes, right. That that in that fits your definition, but it's not immediately what comes to mind. We think of artists. We think of scientists.
1: It's not, but I I, uh, totally agree that that is a form of creativity and uh, um, a very valuable form of creativity and perhaps um, something that uh, we're moving towards in our increasingly complex society. It's not just going to be a product. It's not just going to be an artifact like um, a painting or a dance number. It's going to be moving groups of people uh, together uh, and motivating groups of people to – um, in in certain ways, and that's a that's a creative endeavor, um, uh, and humor kind of gets at that. And you know, circling right. back right. to um, to one of your earlier comments, where you have a humorist uh, with an audience, really, uh, it's it's either working, and they're they're going along for the ride, and they're really enjoying the the. Um, ideas and the movement and the rhythms or it's just not and in in this um large movement that you're talking about this is a kind of um oh what do they call it uh social networking or mob casting or whatever the term mm-hmm. term is where you know people are really able to um um move together in a creative way and that's sounds like um a, a a new creative endeavor that we should start to recognize
0: yeah i mean if people think differently and live differently uh, as a yeah. result of this and um something interesting that um you've said that is also intriguing is that the traditional psychological liter- literature shows creativity and intelligence linked at lower levels of iq but that above certain levels they don't go hand in hand what is that? The, that about? this is is the
1: this is the threshold hypothesis mm-hmm. and um, and this is uh again, this is the kind of common sense notion of uh, yeah. you know sitting around the faculty <laughs> lounge and boy, these people are all really smart. <laughs> 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 however um, <laughs> yeah. but uh you know in in uh, some literature shows not all uh, some literature shows, and uh, that uh, uh, intelligence and creativity correlates up to a threshold of about one twenty, and this is one one and a half standard deviations above the mean after which it tends to disentangle um, this is a um, controversial. Uh, finding and uh the intelligence people will argue with you till they're blue in the face that intelligence and creativity go together hand in hand <laughs> the but more you're intelligent right. you are D- even you don't need a laboratory
0: just to disprove that
1: they will i there are studies out there that um will show that um uh, the higher your level of intelligence the more likely you are to uh, achieve tenure and uh <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Work at a Fortune 500. Well, yes, we know all that. That's not creative at all. Right. Um, achieving tenure is about the least creative thing you can do. Um, but uh, publishing uh, research articles, uh, uh, patents, uh, things like that that uh, you, that are, you know are objectively creative um, that that uh, can be measured. That's important. So that's the threshold hypothesis. Very you know, somewhat controversial because a recent meta-analysis uh, found by. Uh, found found that uh, by Dr. Kim from Notre Dame, I think, um, found that uh, um, there's no relationship or there, that there uh, was no threshold that uh, uh, this, these uh, studies in the past do not uh, generally show that this trend being true that uh, hmm. um, so uh, mm-hmm. who knows now, in my research, uh, looking at brain imaging, which was the first study to do this, we did find a threshold where both IQ and creativity were correlated up to about an IQ of 120 and that different brain networks were engaged by uh, those below an IQ of 120 to engage in creative cognition from those above an IQ of 120 to engage in creative cognition. So people could be
0: creative on either end, but, but their brain would be doing that differently?
1: They were doing it in different ways Hmm. and they weren't more or less creative than each other. They were engaging uh, in this uh, divergent thinking in different ways. So this, again, supports the threshold hypothesis with the additional element of a neurological basis for it. So it's not just behavioral tests. So I think there's something there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, any good researcher will say more funding and more research needs to be done. But uh, uh, I do think that in this case, more research needs to be done to find out what exactly. Is, is happening but common sense will tell you that intelligence and creativity don't go hand in hand
0: right and, and you know maybe it's just because of the nature of the work I do and so a lot of the people I'm talking to might fall into this category of social entrepreneurship that we were just talking about yeah. um, because to me um, when you talk about creativity you, you uh, not always but it often has some kind of uh, or certainly you can see that it sometimes has a, an aspect of addressing social issues in interesting and new ways which which i don't think is unrelated to the work you do because you also talk about positive affect the brain's capacity for positive affect yes so i mean in terms of the common sense thing i'm just going to say this and i'm not sure this but you know one place my mind went is that um well i don't know just you're saying there's this common sense thing that we know that Unfortunately, it's often true that people who are very intelligent and then also very powerful might in fact be kind of stifling influences, Um, you know, in fact get loosed from a moral or creative or human center and somehow those things don't feel completely unrelated.
1: Yeah, and we have to, and again, we can't devolve to 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 easy metaphors. I mean, there are highly intelligent people that are highly creative. That is true. And I mean, you can look in history and uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Marie Curie and uh, Albert Einstein. I mean, these people are obviously at the pinnacle of creativity and the pinnacle of intelligence. Um, So um, these go uh, hand in hand in these. In the case of um, any number of individuals. Um, but you also have people that are uh, of, of of lower levels of intelligence, um, who are are highly creative, and, yeah. and there's there's stories of uh, you know the termen termites uh, who were uh, picked for their high levels of intelligence and followed over time, and and uh, uh, I'm I'm hoping that I remember this story correctly, but uh, you know they followed them over time and they ended up. Um, achieving, you know, well uh, in life. They weren't uh, uh, any more particularly creative than uh, than uh, anyone else uh, um, in, in, in terms of their overall creativity. And they were, you know, business people and college professors and whatnot. But one person who wasn't uh, uh, picked as a termite because his intelligence uh, wasn't high enough, I believe, was William Shockley, uh, Nobel hmm. Prize winner. Hmm. So, um, th- you know, this is uh, the case that disproves the rule. So the, uh, the, the uh, creativity and intelligence going hand in hand um, is not necessarily the case. There's people of lower levels of intelligence who have a high level of, of creative capacity, and this is probably the basis of this threshold hypothesis. Now, to get back to your point... The personality variables, <laughs> which, if I live long enough, uh, the third uh, <laughs> period of my career i 'd like to really dig into to personality because i 've you know studied intelligence for about fifteen years, creativity for hopefully fifteen years personality I think is is an incredibly important and fascinating variable, and you can have people with high intelligence, high creativity, and yet uh, just not. <laughs> just not working. They, they might not have the moral capacity to push their ideas forward. They might be evil. They might right. just be miserable people. Um, I'm really fascinated currently with Steve Jobs, um, right. who uh, you know, people are talking to me a lot about him because he
0: certainly well, a genius,
1: certainly <laughs> could. Yeah, arguably a genius. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he, college dropout. I think he's just a high school graduate, um, probably very intelligent, very creative, um, read an article about him that, you know, perhaps he, you know, co-opted other ideas and turned them uh, into this wonderful thing that is Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was him that did that. But boy, was he a miserable SOB. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and really hard to get along with and really miserable. So um, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Was that conducive to the creativity of those around him? Um, what was going on with his personality uh, did that allow him to succeed? Is that characteristic of creative people? Creative people, oftentimes, I mean, the myth is that they're magical people and that they're um, adept in all aspects. But oftentimes, creative people are are somewhat miserable and hard to get along with. You right, know, and world-
0: depressed, and I mean, no,
1: well, be careful now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to devolve into another neuro mythology. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry. Um- <laughs> but, but. <laughs>
0: But I mean, but, there are a lot of and there's there are a lot of um, famous creative people across history who are also famously unhappy, and it's almost like that's part yes. of their creative process. It,
1: it it can be, and 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 we don't know. It's a chicken and egg question yeah. because I mean, you're you've got all these new useful ideas that the world doesn't want to hear about. Mm-hmm. The world kind of likes the way they've been doing things. So does that make you miserable, or is it the fact that you're so obstinate and persistent? And, and uh, pushing that Sisyphean rock up the hill that, uh, that, that makes you uh, miserable. So um, there's a lot to explore there. Mm-hmm. And, and I would like to spend some time digging into these personality variables. There has to be something positive there um, that keeps people motivated. But uh, the downside is that it sometimes seems that uh, highly creative people can, can, can be miserable.
0: So another way, another word that keeps coming to mind when, when I th- hear you is this, you know, what is the connection between creativity and purpose? Yes. Um, yeah. And is, when you talk about positive affect is, is one of the words that's there in descriptions of your work. Does that get at some of this? I mean, when I hear that, my mind also goes to virtue, Whether you whether you understand that in any kind of religious way or not, um, yeah,
1: I think I do. I mean, I'm kind of a closet. I, I'm, you know, I attend uh, Episcopalian services with my wife, who's Episcopalian, but I'm kind of a closet deist. So, okay. I, <laughs> I <understand>. not anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now it's out um. in the open. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, uh, but, um, so I, I uh, really do try to understand, and and I've described myself as an existential neuropsychologist. When I when I treat <laughs> patients, I really try to f- figure out with them how to find meaning in their life. So these are patients that have suffered brain injuries. And um, usually they're not going back to that great brain that they had before their traumatic brain injury, before their tumor, before the diagnosis with multiple sclerosis. So it's often uh, the task is to start a new chapter in this book that is their life. And that's a very existential question to to really figure out how to find meaning in, in, in one's life. And I think I, I research about half the time and I do clinical work about half the hmm. time. And uh, my, my patients really bring meaning to my uh, research work and my research work, I think brings relevance to my, my patients. And, and this work with creativity I think is important because uh I, I think it is a uniquely human characteristic that, that provides meaning in one's life. Um it 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 really allows one to produce something that is lasting, meaningful, useful to others, and that um makes you happy. Mm-hmm. That makes other people's people happy and that uh, provides value and and uh, ultimately meaning uh, whether it's spiritual personal familial um, it it really hits all those those buttons regardless of which one you want to hit um, i I think it's a it's a uh, an important capacity that if again, if my hypotheses are correct and as our brains start to unravel as we age. It's something that could only be increasing in terms of our capacity to engage in as we age,
0: hmm, that's as opposed to trying,
1: as opposed to trying to hold on to this intelligence which will will be slipping away.
0: You could think of making meaning out of whatever the raw materials of your life is really the ultimate is the creative work of the everyday yeah. and of a of a of a lifetime.
1: It is in in being you know kind of de- deistically oriented. I. I I think this is it. So, um, what we leave here as the residue of our life and our creative works is is um, is it. Mm. So, if we're able to leave some sort of residue of our life behind, um, our creative works is are are uh, an important part of that. So, uh, I I put great stock in 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 creativity for that reason. On, on a personal basis if 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 not for a, a spiritual basis
0: mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to ask you about we've just wandered into this, you know what you can measure and what you can't because even when you talk about that residue um, it's often the relationships you leave behind, right the love yeah. you leave behind or the the lives you've helped form and that, too, is you know, a successful re- relationship is, <laughs> is, is, is it, it takes every bit as much creativity as intelligence, maybe more I'll say <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and it is a creative work. And you're constantly, hopefully, um, not just doing the same thing over and over, but trying new hmm. things, trying different things, hoping that they're useful. And it's, a, it's an interactive uh, exchange between two people at, at the most basic level, between members of a family mm-hmm. at, uh, at, a, at a broader level and between members of a community at, at the broadest level uh, that uh, you can create, as you're talking about, with this um, community that, that serves uh, members with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this community is created that uh, leaves a residue behind that is incredibly meaningful um, forever
0: potentially Right. right.
1: That, is, that is as close to immortality as you're going to get
0: <laughs> I, I want to come back to something you said a minute ago that was so intriguing about your sense of aging uh, That so tell me again so that you think we lose, we lose some capacities we, we certainly lose capacities what, what, yeah, do, we, what I, do we lose and what can we gain
1: <laughs> well I mean it's pretty well known from um, neuroanatomists, that uh, our brains are myelinating, the wires that connect up different regions of our brain are myelinating as, as we uh, develop, and that that peaks um, oh, in, in our frontal lobes in our early uh, 40s, and that thereafter, it starts to unwind and demyelinate gradually, starting at the front of the brain and working to the back of the when brain. When you say so,
0: demyelinate, what does that mean?
1: It, the, the 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 insulation around the wires. So if you mm. think of the myelin as the insulation around the wires that uh, keeps the electrical current from leaking uh, to, to other right. wires, and you know it's the same thing as the as uh, as the uh, blue blue stuff around your internet wire. It okay. keeps the signal keeps the signal going down the wire instead of leaking from side to side. So the myelin allows the signal the electrical signal to transmit faster and more efficiently. So that that myelin completes its uh, developmental trajectory um, up in our mid-40s and then thereafter reverses. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, we might be able to take advantage of that. Uh, um, Everyone, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 47. And so I'm on that downward trajectory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, on that downward trajectory. And I um, uh, work with a lot of patients who are worried about their cognitive decline in their 50s and 60s and want to have that brain of their 20s and 30s. And that is frankly unrealistic. We're, our memory is going to start getting spottier. We're not going to have that word quickly yeah. at our, uh, <laughs> at our t- uh, t- t- tip of our tongue. And um, it, that's just the way of the world. That's the way our brain winds down before we die. And however, this uh, capacity of our brain <coughs> is, as it changes, can be co-opted for creative capacity. If transient hypofrontality is true, uh, this is more conducive to that hypofrontal state and there's lots of apocryphal stories about uh, older people and you know they're retired and that may be the reason but older people picking up a paintbrush picking up a musical instrument mm-hmm. um and being creative undertaking volunteer activities and getting more engaged and doing things my mother started quilting in her 60s and is now uh winning uh, you know, prizes at quilt shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is enjoying herself immensely in her uh, early 70s. Um, this is something that uh, makes sense uh, in terms of uh, the time she has, the uh, ability she has, and the way her brain is winding down as she ages.
0: So, is another way to um, think is this another way to think about wisdom? We 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 observe not everyone, but um, that many people become wise, which you could say is another creative capacity, um, can you see wisdom in the brain? i know it 's hard to even define
1: I, yeah right. i i i you know i don 't know anything about wisdom is <laughs> the easiest answer, um, however, I think you know wisdom is probably the accumulation of this knowledge base and this uh back and forth between uh the frontal lobes and transient hypofrontality and lots of disappointments and successes and compromises and and and, and the fact that you've solved lots of problems in your life right. uh, successfully. Some people are less wise um, because they get stuck in the rut, I suspect, and they keep banging that same drum. Uh, the people who are wise, uh, I think, have uh, taken the creative challenge of life and solved it well.
0: Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you what the relevance for your work is uh, and even for your life is. is um, so Richard Davidson is somebody I've also interviewed who's um, contributed to the to our understanding of neuroplasticity, that, that our brains yeah. can change across our lifespans. And, of course, he did that by studying the brains of meditating Tibetan Buddhist monks. Um, yeah. But I find that to be so encouraging, that idea. <laughs> <And you've, laughs> everyone you've just does given yeah. right but and you've just <laughs> given a, a more concrete example of how our brains change in this in this sense some something that's being lost but as you're saying it's a dynamic process um but i i and i'm i suspect you get asked this question a lot i mean so how if we assume that we can cultivate qualities like creativity or creativity with purpose um How would you go about doing that? Or how do you think about these things as you go through your life?
1: Well, um, I think there are some strategies to cultivating creativity. And uh, uh, thinking about um, Dr. Davidson's um, work in neuroplasticity, you need to get some stuff in your head, uh, some raw materials in order to be... uh, uh, with which to be creative. So mm-hmm. that 10,000 hour thing, Malcolm Gladwell uh, talks about this practice, as well. You have to practice,
0: right? You have to you practice.
1: practice, practice, practice. Yeah. That 10,000 hour thing is probably right, or ten, not 10 years, but it takes a lot of time to change the structure of your brain. Mm-hmm. And um, there's several studies out there now. It's, you know, the, jug- the famous juggling study where they, they have novices... Um, Uh, ...who don't know how to juggle. They image them, then they juggle for three months, they image them again, and they see that literally a portion of their brain, a small chunk, but a portion of their brain is beefed up like a muscle uh, in service of that concerted thing that they're doing with their brain. And that is the thing. The important thing is they're doing a very new thing in a in a concerted way. And their brain says, hey, if we're going to be doing this thing in the environment uh, over and over and over, I'm going to build tissue to do that so that we can do it easier and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be creative, pick one thing, get a lot of experience in that one thing and do it over and over and over that. Um, Playfulness is um, uh, a second aspect where you can have downtime, basically, and play with ideas, whether that's the long walk or the recess or whatever we talked about, a uh-huh. uh, bath, uh, a glass of wine. Um, this this downtime is incredibly important to allow that raw material to come together in novel and useful ways, this transient hypofrontality. Uh, this persistence is uh, perseverance is... Um, incredibly important because uh, once you find a good idea pushing it uh, forward into the world uh, is um, is going to be difficult and uh, a lot of rejection is usually the matter of course for people who are creative and then research we haven't touched upon this, but research almost invariably shows that highly creative people put out lots and lots of ideas It's very rare, and that they're not the,
0: all brilliant right they
1: and they're not all brilliant, yeah. you have a lot of failures, yeah, and it's it's not the one hit wonders that uh that win the day it's it's thousands and thousands of ideas Picasso put out, you know, 20,000 individual pieces of art and I can guarantee you they're not all going to go.
0: <laughs> no matter how um, much they would all sell for today.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, we'd love to have one, but they're yeah. they're they're not all He's trying lots of different ideas and, mm-hmm. and so putting out lots of different ideas is another uh, another trick if you will. So, those four things um, are are pretty good strategies based on pretty solid neuroscience. Uh, exploiting this neuroplasticity that you talk about.
0: And and Richard Davidson is one of the places, directions he's taking that is in looking at something like compassion, which is a virtue that, that, medit- that Buddhist meditators are contemplating and actually, you know, have, helping people practice, uh, even yeah. adolescents practice something like compassion, which I keep coming back to this, but I'm not sure I've ever, you know, really asked you this idea of positive affect that's part of your Work. I mean, it does seem related to that. Are you, are you learning things about, about how to – yeah.
1: We haven't studied positive affect. There are studies out there that mm-hmm. show that positive affect is is conducive to creative cognition. Hmm. So I am aware that um, – and, and I have studied positive affect in other – um, domains, if you will,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but uh, just the straight up personality variable of positive affect versus negative affect. But um, uh, there is research out there showing that you know that that positive affect, and and I have to believe that even though you know Steve Jobs was kind of uh, an SOB, um, he. At the end of the day, he believed he had some positive view of where he was going, and he had a positive sense of his mission yes. with where he was taking it. So that positive affect, um, that cheerfulness, that that um, ebullience about mm-hmm. uh, where your ideas are taking you, I think, is really important. It might not come across as being happy or pleasant to other people because that takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, but that 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 Sense of um, purpose and that sense of uh, positive influence that you'll have on others, I think, is is important. And there is good research out there showing the positive affect is related to higher
0: creative cognition. And um, how again, just asking you personally, um, I've seen you somewhere mention a, a son that you have a son. Um, how does this science you've done? You know, how does that flow into, for example, your life as a parent and how you think about raising children in the world? What would you maybe do differently that you wouldn't have known before?
1: Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a stepfather and okay. I uh, um, came into my children's lives when my son was nine okay. and my daughter was 12. And... Um, I guess that's another element of uh, why I'm interested in creativity. My son is, well, my, both my children are very intelligent. My son is very artistic. And so I'm looking at him, not as a scientist, but I'm looking at him as a as a father. and going, He's really intelligent, but he's got this different thing going on in his brain where he just loves to draw and loves to play with these um, transformers and loves to do these different things with his brain that I don't fully understand. I would like to know what's going on in his brain. And to this day, I mean, he does art and and, uh, is an artist uh, and uh, his brain works in a very different way. And I'm still trying to understand that process about how the artist's brain works Uh, as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, you know, trying to uh, leave that space open as much as possible is, is, is important. And letting children explore that that space is, is enormously important.
0: Yeah. I remember talking once with a rabbi named Sandy Sesso who's done a lot of work with spirituality of children, and she talked about how one of the most important things we can do for our children is just put some quiet in their lives. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of comes back to our idea about maybe boredom, is a, but it's, boredom is just free space. And what I'm getting from you is that that creating quiet and free space in our children's lives is also a contribution to their to their creative powers
1: I think so I used to joke that you know anytime Uh, And this sounds a little harsh, but any uh, toy, the only toys a a child needs is a rock, a stick and a piece of rope and (laughs) off they go. And they should be able to, um, make a, make a whole, uh, whole bunch of toys out of that. Uh, And that's not original by the way, but, uh, that, they, they should be able to amuse themselves with, with that. But I mean, we had, um, the kids were involved in 4-H and they, um, took care of animals, um raised pigs and sheep yeah. and we have chickens to this day. And so they had a lot of, uh, uh, time to do, um, chores and other things that, uh, gave them downtime. Um, uh, Stephen was, a um, obsessive skateboarder and, okay. you know, sitting and watching him, uh, just, you know, try to get that kickflip over and over and over. Well, there's that practice thinking.
0: that's changing your brain, right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, he's also engaging his um, brain in a certain way by doing something physical. But you wonder if his how his mind is wandering freely mm. on other on other things. Mm. So, you know, watching him and and I am you know an old basketball player, but same thing. You can you can get into this so called flow of a basketball game, yes. and your mind can just go somewhere else completely. And and you wonder where where his mind's going.
0: Mm. My last question, um you were on a panel on the World Science Festival on beautiful minds, and I just wanted to ask you, because of the life you live and the work you do, you know what 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 does that phrase conjure up for you? What is a beautiful mind
1: <laughs> A beautiful mind is one that comes to my lab to be studied <laughs> <laughs> no i uh, <laughs> I they they were talking about genius yeah. and um, but a beautiful mind. Um, I have to go back to um, I have to go back to the Special Olympics uh, days and some of the some of the minds of the the individuals that I met. And this sounds really trite, um, but um, those um, people, some of those individuals, will stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, it had a profoundly Um, influential uh, impact on the course of my life. And um, the beauty and um, nature of those broken minds uh, was um, very important uh, to uh, my understanding of of this thing that we talked about, positive neuroscience. Um, There's something very positive in... um, the brains and minds of, of these individuals that, um, are seen as uh, disabled and, um, that really, you know, while we were talking about genius, um, on that panel, I always, uh, go back to the touchstone of, uh, my early, uh, transformation, if you will, <laughs> hmm. when I uh, decided to take this path in life. So that's a beautiful mind to me.
0: Hmm. Well, this has just been really delightful. I, I, uh, I had kind of steeped myself in whatever I could find um, that you'd written that a non-scientist could grasp. And, um, but I, I hadn't seen people asking you, you know, some of these kinds of questions, and I, it was really enjoyable going down these paths with you. So thank you.
1: Well, it feels like a therapy session. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked about anything, uh, any of this stuff with anyone but my wife. So, uh, <laughs> Well,
0: I thank you, I think. <laughs>
1: you have a way of drawing this out. So I appreciate it. And right. uh, it was a wonderful conversation.
0: Yeah, we'll have some fun making radio with this. And we will um, let you know exactly when it's going to be on the air and all that. And it's, you know, it's on iTunes and We'll we'll send you all the links, and uh, if we we may have some questions uh, for script, and um, Nancy will be in touch. Sure. Okay. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Bye bye. Bye. All right. Hello. Are you still there? Hello. Hello. That darn clock motor. The clock motor. And I was looking all around, and I thought,
1: wait a minute. Well, you're, u- you're used to it because you walk, yeah. in, you walk yeah. through here every day. So, And, and I um, could hear it was kind of coming up from there. I thought, well, what man, that it? speaker must be on or something. And <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, listen, thank you very much. Thank you.